Apostle John was likely an old man by the time he wrote these letters, and he writes as a spiritual father to an audience he repeatedly calls his little children. He informs his readers that they're living in the last hour, but by that he doesn't mean that the physical world is coming to an end. The last hour is the last hour of the old covenant. There was a seismic shift taking place as the kingdom of God expanded beyond the nation of Israel. The early Christians were faced with persecution from the outside and division from the inside. So John offers a number of reminders and encouragements to these churches in crisis. Last week, Drew taught about our proper posture towards sin. This week, we're continuing that as we look at our proper posture toward God and toward one another. Our passage from Deuteronomy this morning started with God saying to Israel, you are holy, chosen, and treasured. It ended with him telling them to follow the commandments that he had just given them. We'll see the same basic pattern in 1 John. First, we are holy and treasured by God, and therefore we keep his commands. That's the very short summary of our passage today. Jesus gives us a new status before God, and our proper response is grateful obedience toward God and love for one another. But it can be difficult for us to believe that we're both holy before God and required to obey him. What I mean is that when we look at God's commands and the ways that we fail to follow them, it's easy for us to really question our status before God. But the reality is that our sin doesn't change that status before God. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But in light of that, we can also be tempted to downplay the cost that Jesus paid to give us that status. We can treat the gospel as a license to sin rather than a new identity. But what John talks about here is a new identity. He describes a relationship with God where we can be both chosen and treasured and also expected to follow God's commands. All of our passages this morning are full of intimate familial language. John calls his audience little children, refers to God as our father. Our psalm said of God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. If we put these passages together, we see that we've been adopted into a family, and the head of that family is a thoughtful, caring, and competent father. Our passage begins, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The previous chapter taught that whoever says they're without sin is a liar. Here, John transitions to say that whoever claims Christ but doesn't follow his commands is a liar. They're lying with their actions. But there's a tension here. On one hand, we ought to acknowledge and obey the commandments of God. But on the other, we have to acknowledge and understand our imperfect obedience. So John navigates that tension by introducing Jesus as our advocate. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. The word advocate here means a defense attorney. So if we are on trial before God, the judge of the world, Jesus is providing our defense. John also says he is our propitiation. This is not a word we really use um, anymore. 
It means a gift or sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. So Jesus is both our defense and the one receiving our punishment. Jesus, our advocate, isn't so much convincing the Father of our innocence. He's saying that we are guilty, but he has already provided the sacrifice. Justice was served when Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. John Calvin says, Being reconciled by the righteousness of Christ, God becomes, instead of a judge, an indulgent father. As our advocate, Jesus secures our status as sons and daughters. Doesn't mean that sin no longer matters. Sin is still a rebellion against God. But because we are God's children, it doesn't change our status before him. It doesn't mean that we are unacceptable to God. Christ, our advocate, will not allow a cheap view of grace. But he also won't allow self-condemnation and legalism. In him, we can humbly confess with gratitude, and through him, we can call God our Father. Today's Father's Day, so I'll pause on that for a moment. A lot of sermons that address fatherhood apologize for absent fathers or generally bad fathers. Unfortunately, that's the reality for some of us. But I've just said that God is our Father, and that's supposed to be a good thing. So what might it mean that God is our father? There's a lot of research on the impact that fathers can have on childhood development. Here are just a few of the findings. Positively involved fathers lead to better performance in school, better self-esteem, lower incidence of psychological distress, better social skills, and higher likelihood of happy and satisfying adult lives. Our fathers can help us understand our identity, our value, and how to make our way in the world. There's a book called The Good Soldier, where the narrator says, we are all so afraid. We are all so alone. We all so need from the outside the assurance of our own worthiness to exist. Now, that quote might sound melodramatic to you, but in some sense, it's true. Plenty of us struggle with anxiety and depression, self-esteem. And in a very real way, we all need that assurance. And a father can help provide it. A good father welcomes a child, gives that child a name, loves and provides for them regardless of their behavior. In doing that, he's saying, you are mine. And in a very real sense, he is assuring that child of their own worthiness to exist. So when the God of the universe claims us as his people, adopts us into his family, He's doing a similar thing for us. He's giving us an identity that is a solid foundation in a chaotic and confusing world. So how do we relate to that kind of father? John says, with obedience. Verse 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. So just like God addressing Israel in Deuteronomy, John starts by reminding us of our status as children of God. And then he instructs us to follow Jesus. First, God declares us holy, and then we live accordingly. It's the same in an adoptive family. When a child is adopted, they get all the benefits of a son or a daughter, but it comes with the requirement to obey. When we are adopted into the family of God, the same is true for us. 
So we don't throw off the chains of God's commandments because we've received grace. The commandments apply because of grace, because it was grace that allowed us into that family in the first place. The commandments of God serve a purpose. Like any father, God does not want us to remain immature. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, to attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, that we may no longer be children. God's commands are like instruction from a parent, and therefore our maturity. We grow up as Christians through years of faithful obedience. No doubt many of us are now thinking that we don't live up to all of this. We don't live up to God's commands. In chapter 1, we saw that God is light, and light makes things visible. So if the new covenant gives us access to a God of light, we know that our sin will be exposed. And for most people, that sounds awkward or terrifying. But we can't say that we have fellowship with God and hide from him at the same time. So yes, the Father commands obedience. And yes, we are prone to disobedience. But to walk in the light is to freely confess sin to a Father who is faithful and just to forgive. That's why we confess every week when we come together here. So far, we've said that Christ is our advocate. We are adopted as sons and daughters in God's family, and that status requires obedience. And in the last verses of this passage, we'll see that part of God's command is to love one another. Verse 7 begins, Behold, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. So this command to love one another is not new. It isn't separate from obeying God's law. The command to love one another is the same as it always was, but the scope of God's promises have expanded. God has extended his covenant love to all who claim Christ, not just to the people of Israel. This section mirrors some of the same language we read in John 13, which says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John says something similar here. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. But he adds a second part. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. He's probably addressing a specific issue in these churches that he's writing to. There is division, which I mentioned in the beginning, over whether Gentiles needed to follow Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be welcomed into the church. So that was creating hatred between brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, under the old covenant, the nation of Israel had special status as God's people. And access to God was restricted to them. It was restricted even further to be in the most, the closest presence of God. That was reserved for the priesthood. So as Drew said earlier in the series, God was behind a veil. But Christ lifted that veil. He came so that the whole world could have fellowship with God. So to walk in darkness is to live as if God is still behind that veil, as if some are not welcome in the family of God. But under the new covenant, Jew and Gentile share the same status as God's people. Under that new covenant, we are all part of God's treasured possession. 
So John has already said that the sacrifice of Jesus covers not only our sin, referring to the Jews, but the sins of the whole world. So John is saying that in this new covenant of light, how can we not love one another? If Jesus has made Jew and Gentile into one family, there is no one left to hate. In more modern terms, if God has made our neighbors, regardless of color, politics, wealth, or age, if he's made all of them our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we are called to love them accordingly. If we don't, we're still walking in darkness, to use John's language. We're still living as if Christ has not died to make us one family. In Luke 9, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. When they pass through a village in Samaria, Jesus sends messengers ahead to prepare a place for them in the village, but the messengers are sent away. Jews and Samaritans were enemies, as you've likely heard. Um, but messenger, the, so when they found that Jew, Jesus and his people, excuse me, um, were Jews headed to Jerusalem, they wouldn't welcome them in their village. So James and John are furious when they hear this. They ask Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus rebukes them and they move on to another village. The way that Jesus responds shows how God deals with us. First, Jesus didn't ignore their error. John, again, who's writing this letter, is clearly looking for a chance to destroy this people that he hates. But Jesus corrects them because John is walking in darkness. That is the old way. But Jesus came to reconcile those enemy people groups into one united kingdom of God. Second, Jesus didn't send John away. He brings him along to the next village. And in our passage, we see the result of John continuing to follow Jesus. He learns to walk as Jesus walked. He says that Jesus was the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, including Samaria. He says whoever hates his brother walks in darkness. It's all quite a change from asking permission to destroy his enemies with fire from heaven. Some of us may read 1 John and wonder if our sin means that we don't know Jesus at all. And if you feel that way, let John's life be an encouragement. As John walked with Jesus, his teaching and his actions started to look more like Christ's. One way that we can walk in the light together is to do this for one another. We can be a community willing to give and receive forgiveness, to seek reconciliation. We can confess sin together. A community like that doesn't hide from one another doesn't hold grudges or put on airs with one another. And as we do that, as we come together to faithfully follow Jesus together, over the course of years, we will start to look more like Jesus, just like John did. The alternative is to live as if our brothers and sisters are our enemies. John teaches us that that is to walk in darkness. There's plenty of darkness in our world. But we serve a God of peace. We serve a God of light who reigns over a kingdom of light. To be part of that kingdom, we must submit to Christ as our king. No other king will do. Ephesians 1 says that God raised Christ from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We worship that risen king, and in him there is no darkness at all. So we don't need to live in darkness and confusion and conflict. As his people, we walk as he walked, loving our brothers and sisters, especially when we don't understand or agree with one another. I pray that that would be true for us here at Sojourn Oak Forest. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are sinful, but we thank you that we have been made righteous by Christ our Advocate. In him there is no condemnation, and we are your beloved children. Our prayer this morning is that you would make us to be a people deeply rooted in our identity as your children, and that we would respond in grateful obedience to you and humble love for one another. We pray that the neighborhood of Oak Forest would be blessed by our presence here, and that our love for one another would give our neighbors a foretaste of your kingdom. We pray that your kingdom would come here in our city and in each of us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.